0: Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening and ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you're going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. Also, if you have questions or comments for the show, please email them to us at unwind@acton.org. At That's unwind@acton.org. If we read your question or comment on the show, you'll get a complimentary, and yes, that means free, book from the Acton Catalog. I'm joined today by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Pommen, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, and a research fellow here at Acton. This week... We'll watch the second hand tick down to midnight on the doomsday clock, as if something will actually happen when that chime hits, and big layoffs in the big tech world. But first, I want to go online to get some concert tickets, which, if I were a big fan of Taylor Swift, and I'm—well, I'll let you wonder if I am or not— if you were a big fan of Taylor Swift and trying to buy Taylor Swift concert tickets a short while ago, you may have found a lot of difficulty doing that. There are a lot of harrowing stories from not just people ending up somewhere in the thousands in the queue to buy tickets, but also people who tried to execute a purchase only to see their uh, purchase executed multiple times and have their bank account drained. I did see at least one uh, uh, story of that, but clearly a disaster. Uh, with the sale of the tickets for Taylor Swift's upcoming tour. Um, this is not the first time that Ticketmaster has come in for criticism. Uh, I've known people, you know, I come from an arts background, I have a degree in music, I've heard plenty of people complaining about Ticketmaster and uh, alleging that they have a monopoly on the sale of tickets for Uh, Certainly concerts above a certain level of popularity in the artist, uh, Ticketmaster, Live Nation, um, dominating that space. What's different this time is because uh, it was Taylor Swift and I can assume a lot of the uh, septuagenarian and octogenarian United States senators that we have had their grandkids complaining to them about the experience they had trying to buy Taylor Swift tickets. The uh, proprietors of Ticketmaster got hauled before Congress in order to answer questions, which is one form of, uh, I guess, being tortured. But the worst form of torture that emerged was – and we'll put this uh, video compilation in the show notes – was the – the worst form of torture was having to listen to these senators quote Taylor Swift lyrics that were s- assuredly written for them by their staffers about songs they'd never heard before. And frankly, I can't think of anything more painful. Like if this isn't the new form of uh, enhanced interrogation that they're using at GetMo, uh, they should really seriously consider it because that's how I felt watching it. But I guess the first question to meaningfully try to suss out here is— is Ticketmaster, Live Nation, a monopoly? How do we know if it is? And does it matter? What do we
1: do about it? Why do the Swifties rage? Well, we found out the same reason that all of us rage, and that is because of Ticketmaster.
2: I, well, not against the Lord and against his Christ? No. Not where you were going there. Against not a Psalm against, 2 reference. Against,
1: it is a Psalm 2 reference, <laughs> but uh, but brought brought to our present context. <laughs> So one of the ways that I have historically gotten around Ticketmaster is to join fan clubs of various acts that I have wanted to see. Um, There are certain number of tickets that artists often make available um, exclusively to their fans as part of their agreements with Ticketmaster – Part of the question is 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 the old economics question of compared to what? Ticketmaster does have an impressive infrastructure to sell tickets, um, and oftentimes venues themselves will outsource this to Ticketmaster. But there is no in principle reason why. Um, tickets couldn't be sold in another way. So, this isn't a monopoly in the, in the sort of classic sense of like, you know, a state sponsored monopoly where it is ruled that everyone has to tell, sell their tickets through Ticketmaster. But Ticketmaster does provide a service to both these contract, these, these venues as well as these acts. Um, and maybe this is this will be a catalyst for both venues and artists looking to expand the ways that tickets uh, can be available to fans. Um, this has certainly not been handled well by Ticketmaster. Eric, uh, you know, detailed you know some of the horror stories here. So hopefully, uh, this is an arbitrage commu- uh, opportunity that uh, that folks like Taylor Swift and the varying concert venues across the nation that deal with Ticket will take and uh, seize the initiative.
2: So there's, uh, you know, the details are a little hazy, um, but there's, there's Live Nation and Ticketmaster merged um, what, about a decade ago, and... Um, Uh, A little more than that, actually. Um, Uh, It was
0: in 2010. um, uh, So I'm here quoting from uh, the Morning Dispatch piece from last week, which we'll also put in the show notes. Founded in 1976 to sell ticketing system hardware, Ticketmaster had allegedly cornered 80% of the entire ticketing market by 2010 when venues and promotions giant Live Nation merged with Ticketmaster in a multibillion-dollar deal. The Department of Justice allowed the merger to go through but imposed a consent decree wherein the combined  – Entity Live Nation Entertainment promised not to engage in anti-competitive behavior.
2: Okay, so then there's been uh, reports, uh, rumors. um, I think it's a little more than rumors, but reports of intimidation by Live Nation uh, of venues that you know, unless they also uh, are using Ticketmaster, they're you know, they're going to back out or whatever. So there, there, it does seem to be um, a worry over just the the market share they have and the way in which they're using it, Um, but. I guess this whole conversation bothers me because it's it's antitrust law is a very blunt uh, instrument uh, for something that I do think there may be a real problem here. The problem is not monopoly. So monopoly does not is not a synonym for big. All right. You know, Google is not a monopoly. It competes with other big tech industries. Maybe we'll talk about those later. Um, same with Amazon and Microsoft. They all compete compete with each other. Um Ticketmaster, now, you know, they have one or two competitors. They're pretty small. Um, but the question is, uh, you know, are, are they the only game in town? That would be a monopoly. However, more important, far more important, and this is something that is too often missed, is, is the market open to new competition? That is the important question. Even if there is a monopoly, it is far more important that markets be open. Um, so... What bothers me is the solution being proposed um, from these hearings and from a lot of the reporting is maybe we should break up Ticketmaster and Live Nation and they should be two separate entities again. Uh, Use this kind of antitrust power to break up one company into two or more. Um, And I don't really see that as solving the problem. I mean, they certainly could, you know, they can't ban them from in any way dealing business with each other, so they can keep cooperating um, in many ways. Um, and the question is really, you know, is there some legal problem? Uh, is there some barrier uh, preventing alternatives to this model of Ticketmaster that they, they have, you know, basically cornered the market on? Um, are, are there real alternatives available Um, Or is it legally impossible? That is the sort of thing I would like to look at. Or, you know, maybe more simply, are there just certain barriers, Um, not like restrictions or prohibitions, but, you know, is there some ridiculous concert tax that, uh, you know, a big company like Ticketmaster can pay that a small upstart couldn't or or whatever the case may be? that's the sort of thing that you, you take down those barriers and suddenly innovation is possible. Um, and suddenly not only do you potentially have new competitors, but you have Ticketmaster having to worry about even the possibility of new competitors. This is what Joseph Schumpeter talked about in his uh, Capitalism, Socialism, Democracy when he, he coined the term creative destruction. He was talking about monopoly power and how as long as markets are open, even a monopolized market, the company has to behave as if there is competition just because there could be. Um, That is far, far more important than how big a company is or even how much of the market share they hold. It's whether that uh, is legally secured um, against any kind of real competition or whether new upstarts could actually enter the market and disrupt things. Let me give
0: you another passage here from this morning dispatch piece. Live Nation head Joe Birchhold's response to all the scrutiny, you need to calm down. The executive apologized for the Swift Tour fiasco, but blamed it on high demand and attacks by bots trying to snag tickets for resale. He argued his company faces real competition. Upstart SeatGeek, for instance, is breaking into the primary ticket sales game, though it is still much smaller, and encouraged lawmakers to set their sights on preventing these bot operations and cooling the resale market. Industrial "Industrial scalpers breaking the law using bots and cyber attacks to try to unfairly gain tickets – uh, con- uh, contributes to an awful consumer experience birchhold said quote we need help passing real reforms to stop this arms race he also denied reports of retaliation against venues though the doj reportedly began an antitrust invest investigation into live nation last year even before the swift debacle so a, a couple of things stand out to me here um one one of the things that i'm amazed by is this i i think p- perhaps as a testament to I guess you could read it either way you want to about the uh, monopoly argument as somebody who's involved in tech stuff on a pretty regular basis I run our marketing communications team here at Acton uh, not being prepared for the deluge of web traffic that they had to know was coming with the release of tickets for this Taylor Swift tour is shocking to me, is truly shocking to me. I mean, you can dedicate so much more server space. There are services out there like Cloudflare that help you deal with huge services, uh, surges in traffic like this by having the uh, system be available on multiple servers and it slides them over to different servers when you get a deluge of, of visits like this so that it doesn't bring everything down. So I guess on one hand, you could look at that and say uh, Ticketmaster, Live Nation really doesn't have it all together because they were not prepared for this influx of traffic. Or I guess you could look at it as an argument in favor of they are a monopoly. Look how monopolies don't have to care and don't have to be prepared for this kind of stuff because they clearly were not prepared for all of that. I thought the point about SeatGeek also was interesting because I opened uh, while we were talking here uh, a folder on my iPhone, which is labeled Tickets, and I have six apps in there. One of them is Ticketmaster. The other five are StubHub, TickPick, GameTime, SeatGeek, and TodayTicks. Now, it noted that SeatGeek is getting into the primary sale of tickets. All of those others are ticket resale websites. I also think that this is something that gets Unfairly maligned by a lot of people. There is a limited supply of tickets to any given show. And when the way that they are priced out by Ticketmaster does have different tiers of pricing, right? If you're going to be on the floor for a concert, you're paying more money to be close to the stage than you are if you are up in the nosebleed section. Uh, however, because there's that limited number, there are only a limited number of tickets that anybody out there can buy. And because... They're all set into sections with those fixed prices. There isn't an opportunity up front for people who really desire something to offer more in order to acquire that product. It is an expression of how much people actually desire the product that they are purchasing. And that kind of expression is limited by Ticketmaster's model, but it is represented in the resale model. And it doesn't always have to be the kind of horror stories that you hear about – ticket resale that people buy them up front and then use it as an, an arbitrage opportunity to make a whole lot of money on the resale market i also was in new york uh new york city back in november and the day of day before uh got a ticket for a broadway show on one of those sites that was pure resale um people have the tickets they're looking to resell them i'm buying them from another individual that's listing them it was also beneficial to me that i got it I can't even remember what it was vis-a-vis face value, Um, but certainly from what I had initially looked at, even, I'll give an example, I looked up tickets for Hugh Jackman, who's currently playing in The Music Man in New York City. Uh, Through primary sale tickets, $1,000 a seat to sit on the floor. Not cheap at all. It was a couple hundred dollars on one of the resale sites. You could get tickets for a couple hundred dollars. Um, Probably people who bought them very early on up front, uh so i think i think the is with so much of the argument about monopoly and this is even a point here in this piece from uh, jennifer huddleston who is a research fellow at cato that the current operating definition of monopoly is big company that i'm currently mad at um and we see this so much with uh the big tech uh conversation we'll we'll uh we'll get to big tech a little bit later in the program but you know people who throw the term out at facebook at twitter at google they're 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 a monopoly and my question back is always what is it that they have a monopoly on i do not know because i think you could make a compelling argument here about live nation ticketmaster having monopoly on or at least large market dominance on primary ticket sales. But there are all kinds of other markets that exist out there that allow you to access those things at different price points, more closely reflecting the value you see in the product that you are buying. And I don't know that I see this as a bad thing the way that some people seem to.
1: There's also, you know, those of us old enough, and I think those of us in this room, elder millennials are probably the last generation to appreciate this, is it used to be very, very hard to get tickets at any price. You had to show up at the venue, buy the tickets in advance. Ticketmaster at one time had physical locations. I remember a, a sort of second-tier shopping mall in the Grand Rapids area that had a Ticketmaster with all of the posters of the coming shows, musical acts going in, and you had to physically go to those places and wait in a physical line to buy these tickets. And part of the difficulty that we're seeing with Ticketmaster is, in fact, that the market, at least for buyers, is considerably more open. Now, some of those buyers, they would discount as as bots or these secondhand sellers or these scalpers. But scalpers have always and will always be part of this experience. And there are ways in which that can work out really well for consumers, as Eric helpfully detailed. You know, I can't tell you, you know, probably half the Tigers games I've gone to, I've bought the tickets the day of, outside of the stadium, from individuals selling tickets that they had either purchased and then could not attend the game or had purchased with the intent of selling. And those people provide a very real service to consumers. Um, and in fact, only make things easier for consumers and and make it a more open market on at least the secondary level.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is just a basic supply and demand mismatch. Um, and to some degree, it, it will necessarily be that but you because you only have so many seats in a concert venue or arena it's a limited number but yet the demand for taylor swift at all uh is insatiable um and so taylor I swift mean, I, likes I hate supply to say this no one's gonna <laughs> no one's gonna like to hear this um but basically clearly Ticketmaster wasn't charging enough for these tickets right um now i'm not saying they should charge more but if we like The price they were charging, which most people think is already too high, um, you're going to have this sort of thing. Now, I agree, um, as you mentioned, Eric. There's a lot of ways they could have run this more smoothly, Um, and this gets me back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, are there any barriers to market entry? Because to me, this is an entrepreneurial opportunity. Somebody can come in and say, "Well, we can run this smoother." They should be going to Taylor Swift and saying, "What can we do to?" to be your new Ticketmaster, to, you know, uh, make sure this doesn't happen to your fans again. She has an interest in this. Um, and, uh, you know, Taylor Swift fans are, are going to always want to see Taylor Swift uh, you might even say Swifty's gonna swift, swift, swift. Uh, and it's something you can count on. And so uh, I think any, any, anybody who is upset with this, who has the know how uh, to uh, design an alternative, um, now is your time. Um, and do it before something happens in Congress. You know, as as uh, Eric mentioned, you know, they're already trying to spin, Live Nation is trying to spin this as a way to cut down on markets right, to, to shut down, uh, you know, the, the secondhand sellers. Um, that means less options uh, for people who want to see that, you know, ironically, that, that would be closing the market legally, using legal means to close the market. That would be uh, something I would be concerned about. So I, I think it, it helps just to have a, a proper an understanding of the terms. Uh, monopoly is not the right term, nor is it the most important one to even think about. Uh, What we should be thinking about is market openness. Are markets open to new challengers and uh, people with the capital to try? I think uh, there's a great opportunity here.
0: So Dylan is going to get 10 lashes with a wet noodle after this podcast is over for trying to shoehorn a uh, reference to Taylor Swift lyrics into his conversation. Um, but I, you know, I, I appreciate the effort, but uh, now, now we got bad blood. See, now I got to be myself with a wet noodle. Um, I, to come back to a point that you made, though, I thought was a, a good one. I want to expand on it a little bit. The complaints that we hear about you know, the tickets that people purchase uh, from Ticketmaster are too expensive. Says who? Right, They continue to sell out. So clearly there is a market that exists out there for people to purchase those tickets even with the fees added on top of them, which I think is something that uh, people quite legitimately do have grievance about. But Taylor Swift tickets sell out um, because there are people willing to pay the prices that are there. The reason that you get – I remember looking this up when the Chicago Cubs won the pennant in 2016 like okay first game world series game at wrigley field in it's what 1945 was it uh how much are tickets going to be and you had uh tickets a couple rows off the field for almost a million dollars uh which again i don't know that that's actually what any of them sold for i don't know what it actually cleared at but Clearly, there are people out there who are thinking that there might be that much interest from somebody in purchasing one of these tickets. So I think you actually do have functioning markets here in some sense, both in the primary sale part of it because the product that is being offered is being purchased at the prices that are being listed – And you have a resale market that is also working effectively. And I think most people's complaints, sadly, just kind of boil down to, I wish I didn't have to pay this much for something that I wanted. And you know what? Isn't that all of our complaint about everything? We always wish we didn't have to pay as much as we did for the product that we get, because we'd always like to pay less. But if that's what the market price is, that's what the market price is. And as Milton Friedman said, I think people tend to value the things that they get at the price that they pay for it. Now- I am amenable to the complaint that uh, – again, I don't know if this qualifies as monopoly, but having somewhere around 80 percent of the t- primary ticket sale market is an enormous amount of that market. Uh, what also makes me nervous though is if I go further down again in this piece, I get this quote here. As long as Live Nation remains the dominant promoter and ticketer, competition will continue to suffer, said Seek Geek co-founder Jack Grotzinger. The only way to restore competition is to break up Live Nation and Ticketmaster. Of course, he would say that because his company benefits financially if that kind of thing happens. So, just because the primary competitor out there thinks that it is smart to break up Ticketmaster, again, doesn't make such a good case. But I have a harder time adjudicating, again, What is and is not a monopoly here in part because – and if I can find this advisory opinions podcast uh, where they talked about uh, monopoly laws against antitrust law and all of that. We had just kind of made it up. We really just kind of made it all up. Like there is no clear foundation for what is and is not a monopoly. And as a result, it turns into this political cudgel that gets utilized in cases like this where you can drag CEOs – From these companies in front of Congress to have them berated by 75 year olds quoting Taylor Swift lyrics in order to make them look bad, whether or not the underlying fundamentals of this story are actually something worthy of a congressional hearing.
2: Yeah, just to clarify, that's that's no legal definition. There is an economic definition, sure, right? Um, and to your point, which is interesting
0: if, though, because like the tra- the inability then to translate an economic definition into a legal definition is somewhat fascinating.
2: Yeah, it shouldn't be that hard, uh, but I don't think people care uh, to be but accurate. the law part
0: of it. You know, um, again, take you know take it for what it's worth. But I'll, I'll try to find the podcast episode and share that. But yeah. their contention is essentially, if you go back through the history of antitrust law, we really just kind of have made it up. Right. Um, and not just the under, you know, you can come up with the underlying fundament of the law, but it's how it actually applies in certain cases. And going through the history of antitrust litigation, it does, you know, again, I've, my recollection from this podcast is that it just kind of does come across that way. That's like, this is monopoly because we kind of think it is and this isn't because we also think it's not and there just isn't a better foundation right. than that. So,
2: I mean, this is where I think if you're upset about the price of Taylor Swift sti- tickets or whatever – um, you may have a legitimate grievance against Live Nation Ticketmaster. I'm not sure. Um, but you know, 80% market share, maybe that's a partial monopoly to the extent that smaller companies simply let them you know, set the terms and follow along. Um, and they don't really seem to have their own you know, market power in that sense. Um, but even so, market openness is what matters. It, it, I cannot stress this enough. And antitrust law really is not the tool for ensuring that in fact in some ways it could potentially be a tool for closing the markets even more
1: it is a truth universally acknowledged that haters will indeed hate <laughs> perhaps hate 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 <laughs> <laughs> on
0: that note let's move to our second topic from the taylor swift apocalypse to the actual apocalypse and the doomsday clock here quoting from an article from cnn The Doomsday Clock has been ticking for 76 years, but it's no ordinary clock. It attempts to gauge how close humanity is to destroying the world. On Tuesday, the clock was set at 90 seconds until midnight, the closest to the hour it has ever been, according to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which created the clock in 1947. Midnight represents the moment at which we will have made the Earth uninhabitable for humanity. From 2020 to 2022, the clock was set at 100 seconds to midnight. The clock isn't designed to definitively measure existential threats, but rather to spark conversations about difficult scientific topics such as climate change, according to the bulletin. So are either of you feeling the sense of impending doom with the doomsday clock now being set only 90 seconds to midnight?
2: I mean, you think a bunch of atomic scientists could... Design a clock that would move ninety seconds in ninety seconds, but uh, apparently this is the worst. It is design, not an atomic worst clock, design really. clock ever ever uh, invented. Um, so okay, it's a rhetorical tool. Obviously, um, it was invented in nineteen forty seven, um, or you know, not invented. It's not even a mechanical in any way. It's just a, a device uh, for it's, it's making a, press it's briefings. It's a PR basically. gimmick. Yeah. that was conceived um, of in 1947. Back then, uh, there was this thing called the Cold War. And there were these two nuclear superpowers who were, you know, getting ready to launch nukes at each other. Um, And this went on for a very long time until, uh, you know, 1991 or 1989. Um, And so this this was, there was this sense of impending doom. The atomic bomb was new. It had been used recently by the United States of America um, twice in World War II. Um, And it was something that, it is very understandable to be afraid of. Not only do they exist, but people just kept making them and making them bigger and stronger. Um, today we there are still some some issues uh, uh, you know comparisons that could be made. Um, certainly the you know the West vis-a-vis China, um, China's a nuclear power. Um, some people might say, well, hey, Russia's still around. they still got nukes. that's true. They invaded Ukraine. That's true. That was one of the impetuses uh, for this. You know, moving it up to 90 seconds. Um, but still, I kind of maybe I'm maybe I'm too optimistic. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't feel like I have a rosy view of the world. Uh, but I feel like we're we're doing better in some ways. I mean, look at Ukraine for example. They denuclearized. They they had atomic bombs. They don't anymore. They gave them up um, in the 90s. So uh if anything, that's maybe a proxy war between two nuclear powers. but it's not a war between two nuclear powers uh to the extent that ukraine doesn't have any um not saying anything about that is oh great, you know, we can be happy about this war or anything you know that's not the point. don't misunderstand um but i I feel like they've taken something that maybe had uh some importance in terms of these are scientists who know how the atomic bomb works. They're worried about the proliferation of them and the increase of their potency. um, And they want to make sure the world is aware of that. Okay. Now they're bundling things into it like climate change, like pandemic. Okay. Yeah. Maybe, but like nuclear atomic physicists aren't experts in pandemics. They're not, you know, they're not. They're not necessarily even experts in climate change. Um, just because someone is a scientist of some sort does mm-hmm. not mean they are scientists of every sort. It's just like if you go to the doctor, you know, your your family physician will recommend you to a specialist if you have anything wrong with you beyond like a cough, right? <laughs> like this is how science works. Um, now I'm sure the panel is more diverse nowadays. They probably do have some client, climate scientists and whatnot, but it just seems like. I don't know. The whole thing just seems a bit silly to me and it's it's like you know just give me a press release from some experts about something don't make this big performance right don't be clown yourself in order to try to say something serious it's it works at cross purposes um you know, it's the sort of thing I found not long ago, only a year ago, uh, you know, an Onion article uh, portraying them as, you know, terrorists threatening the world uh, unless they hand over $12 trillion, they'll set the clock to midnight, you know, and as if the clock is somehow ca- causing the apocalypse. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's that's just the level it's gotten to um and i just i it doesn't make any sense to me like just be serious <laughs> you want to be taken seriously be serious you don't need a gimmick um use your expertise be you know be realistic um and be open minded um we talked about this uh, i think it was last week but things like climate change even things like war um and peace and Things like pandemics, we need lots of experts from lots of different disciplines working together and offering their perspective and their expertise. We don't need 12 people with a giant clock.
0: Do you know when you need a gimmick, when... What really is happening here is so much scientism and not actual science Yeah, because you know, this is the bulletin of atomic scientists. And I don't doubt for a moment that atomic scientists have a very good understanding of what makes a atomic or nuclear bomb work, how it was created. In fact, if you go back to 1947 – In the history that you just laid out, Dylan, I think it is entirely understandable that an organization of people like this probably had a reaction. The people who worked on the Manhattan Project and then looked at it with kind of a, oh, my God, what have we done Uh, kind of reaction to come up with something like this. Um, I think that is entirely understandable. The problem is, is that almost if we're talking about atomic scientists here, and again, you can go to the, the website of the Bulletin for Atomic Scientists. You can look at all the different people that they have advising them. We're – you're having people here who primarily have the expertise of being atomic scientists, but they are operating as if they have expertise in geopolitics because that primarily is what we're talking about. If uh, – it, this is this question of 90 seconds to midnight and the point where we make the world uninhabitable. I don't know why an atomic scientist has any better insight into all the factors that go into that than – you know, your average environmental scientist does, then your average um, uh, epidemiologist does. Uh, This was my point for so long during the pandemic, that if you look at someone like the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, they have one clear mission that is spelled out in their name, disease control and prevention. And they could do that at the expense of Every single other concern that exists out there. And the reason that we elect political leaders is to take input not only from places like the CDC, but from economic advisors, from all different areas of life to be able to understand how we best need to balance all of these concerns together and make decisions so that we're not making them based on one criteria alone and to the exclusion of all other things. That is fundamentally what is happening here, though, where you have one group of people. Were experts in one thing making predictions and claims about a complicated stew of other things that. I'm not clear that they have a deep understanding on. And I think this is one of the cases where it is absolutely legitimate to be deeply frustrated with the media coverage of this kind of thing because it is taken seriously. We are granting to these people an authority that they do not have, an expertise that is not truly earned because they are talking about something that is out of their lane. It is informed by the thing that is in their lane. But the entire thing itself is out of their lane. And it is a metaphor. It is a metaphor at that. The idea of it being 90 seconds to midnight is the closest that we've ever been. Are you seriously telling me that in 2023 we are at the closest to total annihilation, the uninhabitability of the Earth that we have ever been? Really? Actually? Like not at any point during the Cold War? Were we actually close points where we had um, false fires, uh, notifications of firing of missiles? Were we not closer then? Um, Certainly the threat of Vladimir Putin using a tactical nuclear weapon of some kind in uh, this war with Ukraine is alarming. But there's a big difference between a tactical nuclear weapon and the kind of nuclear warheads that we are often led to think about by this kind of thing. It, It is just so much invention to try to make a political point and to transact off of expertise in one area to try to apply it as an expertise in another area and that stuff just absolutely drives me crazy
1: in reading the coverage of this i was reminded of the of the great saturday morning cartoon show of my youth the tick in which there is one of the one of the one of the uh one of the rogues' gallery is the midnight bomber what bombs at midnight um and who always sets his bombs to midnight and the other thing I remembered was a reporter interviewing the titular tick um asking him about his powers, and he's asking him, "Can he fly?" And the tick says, "Well, no, I can't fly." He says, "Can you know shoot lasers out of your eyes?" and he goes, "No, I can't do that." And he goes he goes, "Well, you know, can you destroy the earth?" and the tick's response is Gee, I hope not. That's where I keep all my stuff. And part of all of these things is all of these things, be they nuclear armaments, be they pandemics. There are people in the world who are acting uh, responsibly and irresponsibly, but nobody wants this to happen. So as these crises come, you have some sort of, you know, you have some unlikely heroes. I believe there was a Soviet missile commander at one point that uh, disobeyed orders to not do a launch at some point when, when one of these false alarms was triggered. So never count humanity out. Um, and these things are determined by the actions of real people in the real world. Um, and that human action is often, you know, not the product of any human design, malevolent or or not. So you have, you know, I, I think also of the, in my youth, I read a book that came out, oh boy, probably eight years after the Doomsday Clock was revealed called The Mouse That Roared, which posited that this small grand duchy of Fenwick, this... Uh, this uh, nation gets a hold, uh, this fictional nation gets a hold of a doomsday bomb. Um, and that this actually ends up, this nuclear proliferation ends up, the insinuation that uh, having a world in which there is a place, a small place like Fenwick, that possesses this, uh, I, w- I won't reveal the twist at the end of the uh, at the end of the novel, but that possesses such a power actually dissuades its use further. And there are ways in which the way these things work out in the world, if you had told people in 1947 that India and Pakistan would have nuclear bombs in 2023, that clock would have already gone off in their minds. You know, we have nations that had an extremely acrimonious split displacing millions of people leading to you know hundreds of thousands if not millions dead who have fought several hot wars in their history and this seems to have not resulted in this armageddon so there are, there are all sorts of ways that these things can unfurl historically that aren't determined and that there is still human agency here and now and though we might not know the place and time of its coming, we should watch. But watch with a sense of prudence and with, you know, with as much hope in the nature of humanity as as, as fear.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I, I would echo all that. that. That was great. Um, I also think, you know, the the idea of this sort of thing made so much more sense in the world of 1947. Um, I mean, even, you know, even the fact that it's an analog clock, uh, it feels a little dated. Um, not that, I mean, they're cool. I, you know, I would actually prefer a watch this analog or whatever, but um, most people have phones and those phones have a digital clock on them. And that's, that's what we're used to. So, um, you know, there's just a side of it that seems ridiculous. And, there is definitely a side of it that is reductionistic. Um, everything apparently can be measured on this one ridiculous clock, every factor whatsoever. Um, so, you know, as far as the climate goes, there, I think there are still very real concerns. There are things we ought to care about in terms of climate change and, you know, what can we do to be better stewards of uh, this world God created and, and left us to, uh, to tend and to keep. Um, on the other hand, there's, there's some good news. Hole in the ozone? kind of closed that one up we did a good job right um, I went to a few years ago I presented a paper in in Manchester England uh, Manchester being the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution everything terrible you've ever read about in the you know 19th 20th century about uh, terrible working conditions uh, you know the uh, poisonous air to breathe you know whatever the case may be they're talking about Manchester it was beautiful. I went for walks in luscious parks. It, you know Why? Because of economic development, because they got through their industrial period and now they can afford to care about the environment. Um, a lot of this sort of talk just doesn't even consider, well, does sometimes going forward mean, you know, in the short term, seemingly taking a step back, right? And um, There there are just so many complications, so many factors, so many incommeasurable uh, factors, things that just can't even be compared to one another, not to mention reduced to a single reading on a giant analog clock. Um, That, again, I just think this is, you know, science has kind of come to a point where uh, through the pandemic and through other things, people don't trust the experts anymore. I mean, that's true of kind of everything And to some degree, that's great uh, because some of it is scientism. Some of it is, you know, we should say, well, you know, do I really need to think, you know, or uh, trust this person? On the other hand, we can't, you can't live in a nation full of cynics and nihilists, right? There have to be some people with some real knowledge and expertise. Um, And so if you're going to try to step forward as an authority, you need to do it well. You need to do it carefully and you need to be measured in what you say and intellectually humble and giant clocks counting down to doomsday are none of those things
1: it was Jack Handy who, who told us that everything eventually evens out when he said eventually I believe everything evens out long ago an asteroid hit our planet and killed our dinosaurs but in the future maybe we'll go to another planet and kill their dinosaurs a lot of this is speculation <laughs> Um, and we can, and, and we, you know, while there are, while there, you know, we do live in a world of scientific facts, what we extrapolate from these, especially, you know, when they're invested in this sort of weight often, often, often fails to appreciate how things even out.
0: One of the things too, that I also find annoying about this is the fetishization of science and scientists that, you know, any, Attempt to do, I think, what we're trying to do here, and say, you know, oh, okay, you know, great, thank you very much, uh, bulletin of atomic scientists. Um, but can can we talk about this? We get the Pete venkman response, which is back off, man. I'm a scientist. Um, I got some authority here, and it's borrowed authority. In, in a lot of these cases, it is borrowed authority. Um, Dylan, your point as well. This is one of the reasons that I remain kind of deeply skeptical about all of these things, because I think people do have a fundamental misunderstanding. About what certain technological advances have actually meant. Uh, so you're, you know what you're talking about with Manchester, England. I also think back to it, the American cities um, and how, if not for the invention of the automobile, they would be so much more polluted than they are now. Why? Because the primary means of conveyance prior to that were horses who have to defecate and often did so in the street. Anybody who has been to Chicago and seen where the horses still do carriage rides, um, there is a bag attached to the rear end of the horse to catch all of the horse feces that otherwise would fall onto the street and then would, through water, um, the rain, washing it into the sewer system, It's often would get into water supplies and would create all kinds of problems that the invention of the automobile, while it pollutes in its own way, did make cities more livable. And the fact that we fail to understand that reality leads me to believe there are a lot of other realities about a lot of other technology that we only look at at the negative side of and we don't look at the positive side of and we get a terribly biased and misinformed picture of the world as a result of it things even out things even out let me know when you find that planet so we can go there and kill their dinosaurs but for right now we'll go to our final topic which brings us back to a conversation in my mind about questions of what is a monopoly Because we've seen over the last couple of weeks a lot of layoffs in the big tech world. Uh, Tech behemoths, uh, Spotify, Salesforce, Google, Amazon, and Microsoft have joined small Silicon Valley startups in slashing their workforces to the tune of more than 56,000 workers losing their jobs in recent weeks. Um, So I I found this interesting for uh, a couple of reasons. One, because we are told constantly – about how the, the just behemoth that is big tech. Uh, and here we see them actually being responsive to uh, market realities in that they cannot continue to employ the number of people that they've been employing up until now because they are not as financially successful as they have been predicted to be. Uh, I, I have always been fascinated a bit by the valuations that are put on a lot of these tech companies. They come often from uh, VC financing uh, you know, so, we were talking about this before the program. I was with Dylan. Um, look at Amazon, for example. And Amazon has very consistent revenue streams as a result of the product delivery service that they provide, but they also have other areas of the company that are consistently losers of money and that they have not been the most profitable company Over a period of time and yet they have a stock price that kind of exceeds what the profit and loss statement would seemingly dictate that their value would be. You also have companies like Twitter and Twitter, the cons of conversation around that sadly has gotten very, very complicated and almost impossible to have because one now cannot have a conversation about Twitter without having a conversation about one's relative opinion of Elon Musk. But I want to try to set that aside for a while and even go back to the Jack Dorsey pre Elon Musk era of Twitter. What I know Never understood as a supposedly, you know, multi-billion dollar company, how is it going to make money? It never really was terribly clear on that because from my perspective as a marketer, Twitter is probably the third or fourth platform on which I would go to for advertising. So I never thought it was going to have the kind of advertising revenue that you were going to see at Facebook slash Meta. They're trying a subscription model now, which is an Elon Musk era invention where you can Keep or get your blue check mark by paying $11 a month for that plus some additional little services that they're offering. I don't know what the uptake on that is going to be. I don't know that they've actually reported any membership or subscription numbers there. Keep in mind, Twitter is now a private company. So a lot of that stuff doesn't have to be publicly made uh, information if Elon Musk does not want it to be publicly made information. Uh, But I never understood where the value was going to come in. Other than I I loved this idea that I can't remember who floated it, but I, I find it fascinating that you have all these influencers who exist on Twitter, the Kim Kardashians of the world, who get paid a lot of money to mention a product or a service by name. I always thought that, and I agreed with this person's perspective, that Twitter's way of making money is finding a way to get a piece of that. Uh, that for every influencer post, uh, Twitter gets a percentage of all of that. But even that doesn't seem like all that sustainable of a business. So it was never clear to me how Twitter was going to be a super profitable company, and yet their valuation, their stock price was much higher, at least looked to me, much higher than it actually was. And I find it interesting for all the times, going back to the Ticketmaster conversation we were having, that we have seen the uh, cadre of big tech CEOs hauled before Congress and forced to answer ridiculous questions asked by people who don't understand the questions that they were asking that were written for them by their younger staffers and. Uh, that these these are monopolies that are threatening us in some way, and we look at these job losses now, the cuts that they're being forced to make, and see that, yeah, they are still responsive to uh, market forces, and we shouldn't be surprised by that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in the case of, of Twitter, for example, it's it's very clear that they have competition, um, and I think it's clear that they're not doing all that hot, Um not only there are, are there Twitter clones out there, but I think probably more importantly, there are just things that are social, uh, other forms of social media that are just different. So, even if let's say you're a Kim Kardashian, you're an influencer or whatever, someone, you know, maybe less profile, but who still does their thing. Um, my expectation would be you're going to be on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram first before Twitter. Maybe you'll have a Twitter also, but, you know, that's not I think your it also, bread and butter. It's, it also you know.
0: depends on So I, in the recommendations that I've given to other organizations about how to utilize Twitter because I think a lot of people rightly see it as, um, at best, high risk, high reward because when the mobs do come for people, Twitter is usually the place where the mobs come for it. You don't hear about it happening on Instagram or on Facebook or on LinkedIn or on Snapchat in the way that you hear about it happening on Twitter. And my answer has always been, if you're trying to influence uh, the political process, so lawmakers and their staffs, or if you are trying to influence the media, there's a reason to be on Twitter. If those two things, one of those two things at least, aren't a key part of your strategy, there's no reason whatsoever to actually be on that platform.
2: Yeah, right. Um, So, you know, that that to me... I would almost say, how do you make money out of politicians (laughs) then? I mean, that seems like – or out of journalists, for that matter. Um, And I guess that's where the subscription model comes in. Um, But, you know, to get back to, say, Amazon – their subscription makes sense to me. I have Amazon Prime. It means I get to watch a bunch of stuff for free. I get like free shipping on orders over a certain amount. Wait,
1: wait you you pay to watch a lot of stuff. Well, yeah, and sorry. you and you pay for uh, yeah, free, sorry. free delivery. Yes, <laughs> I misspoke
2: there. Yes, but I get I get something for it. Is what I mean. Yes, I'm paying uh, for the the Prime membership, but but you get something in exchange. Twitter, as far as I could tell, you get a blue check mark. It's like a gold star <laughs> that's like I mean, you know there are some people who I guess they feel like they professionally need that, maybe politicians and journalists are those people, um but I just don't see the draw like where's where's the payoff? I'm on Twitter, um but I'm not paying eleven dollars a month for a blue check mark um I guess people can make all the Dylan Palman clone accounts they want and try to confuse everyone. Um, and no one will know which is the real Dylan Palman official account. Um, but I think at that point, I'll just be like, ah, I don't really care that much about Twitter. And I'll, I'll just stop, right? Like I, it, I'm i not going to be motivated to pay $11 a month at that point. I'll be like, huh, I guess I'm more popular than I, than I thought because people are making fake accounts about me and I'll move on with my life. Um, so I don't know. Um uh, You know, Amazon, Google, um, I feel for the people, you know, losing their jobs, obviously. Um, but when this sort of cut happens, uh, it's because a company has looked at the cost of labor and the productivity, the output uh, coming from it, and they've either due to just realities of, you know, their profit loss statements said, we got to make cuts somewhere. And so we're going across the board or we're going in this department, whatever, or they've, they've look at it and they say, you know, we've been investing for years in this project and we're shutting it down. And, you know, we've seen things like that with, you know, Google plus, for example, Google tried getting in on the, on the, you know, social media game um, and they backed off, they own YouTube. So they're still doing fine. Although it's not quite, I don't know if I quite call that social media, but it, it still competes in some ways. Um, and so, you know, but you, you have things like that that these big companies get big um, to the extent that they actually are successful and profitable. They get big because they try new things, and they allow themselves the space to fail. Uh, the, the key example I always bring up, I think is a great one to think about for people struggling to get a handle on big companies versus monopolies versus closed markets and open markets um, is Nintendo. Uh, Nintendo began in the 19th century, uh, making, I believe in the 19th century, making children's toys. In the 50s or 60s, they started making Disney playing cards. Eventually, in the late 70s, maybe early 80s, they made their first video game system. Um, and that's what we know them for if you're a millennial. Um, you know them from Mario and, you know, Zelda and all that sort of stuff. Duck Hunt. Super
0: yep. underrated game.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although, uh, surprisingly, no sequels. Um, but anyway... Uh, Uh, But, you know, they they have a ton of these great franchises. Um, They also, though, have always been at the forefront of the handheld video gaming market. They've been competitors there, but they've failed. Um, And they've also notoriously taken risks and totally failed. So they tried a sequel to the Game Boy called The Virtual Boy. It was strap it to your face. It's just black with red light uh, and two screens, and it looked 3D, and it was cool. I owned one when they were on clearance because it had failed, uh, and I was able to buy it in, like, 12 games for, like, $50 in, like, 1999 or something like that. Um, but it was, you know, it, it, it was a huge disappointment for the company uh the wii u do you remember that thing it was like here's a wii but instead of the really ergonomic you know wand controller that you move around and control your character you have a tablet computer that is your controller (laughs) and it was clumsy and cumbersome and it it failed um the successor to that is nintendo switch and it's a huge success i mean you look at it you look at competitors like Uh, Microsoft and Sony, Um, when the Wii was successful, suddenly they scrambled to add motion controls to their normal controllers, right? Um, They scrambled to copy, but Nintendo was always setting the stage. Um, They've always had competitors, which has motivated them to innovate, um, and because they've had staples, they've been able to take risks. So you know, you look at something like Amazon or Google or Microsoft. Microsoft has uh, their operating system that is their their staple, right? Their bread and butter. Google has their search engine and uh, maybe their Android ap- operating system, that kind of thing. Um, and you can go on and on, and list it off. Well, these are companies then that are capable of trying innovative things, which is good. It's very good. And they also think they need to, which to me is another indication that they are not monopolies, that they think they have to compete. They have to be trying new things. But the reality is when you try new things, some of them will fail. And in healthy markets, companies will fail. Projects within companies will fail. And when that happens, unfortunately, people lose their jobs. Um, It's not something anybody should be happy about. We should absolutely have empathy for all the people being laid off. Um, But I don't think that this is the end of these people's tech careers. These are talented people, especially, you know, one example is a guy who'd worked at Google for like 20 years. I can't imagine he doesn't have transferable skills that hopefully in a few months time, as these companies start recalibrating their strategies, they're going to have new things that they're going to want to take risks on. And now they're going to need to be hiring. So I, I wouldn't, worry too much, as long as we have tech in our lives, which is everywhere, it's ubiquitous, um, these people are, are going to be able to bounce back. That would be my prediction, anyway.
0: Since you brought it up, I have to include here a, a comedic aside reference to one of my favorite social media posts of all time, which was explaining all the different social media platforms using donuts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, by for example, here is from 2012, so this is, you know, put that in context. Twitter, I'm eating a hashtag donut, Facebook, I like donuts. Foursquare, this is where I eat donuts. Instagram, here's a vintage photo of my donut. YouTube, here I am eating a donut. LinkedIn, my skills include donut eating. Pinterest, here's a donut recipe. Last FM, now listening to donuts. And finally, Google Plus, I am a Google employee who eats donuts.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I I think the point that Dylan makes there is is a good one, that all all of these companies sans maybe twitter um have a core business that produces profits uh microsoft software and also web hosting amazon web hosting this is the big you know most of our day-to-day interactions with amazon uh Happen on websites that are not Amazon, um, that are uh, where Amazon hosts those websites on their servers. Um, Google is search. Facebook is advertising. Well, Google's is also advertising via search and YouTube. Um, And those core businesses are profitable. Um, It's everything else that is in flux um you had you know facebook's is spending a well meta is now spending a staggering amount of money on the metaverse which is not profitable so it's unsurprising you have to staff up for these big projects in order to do big things you need talented people and when those things fail to launch um There is a period of retrenchment and reorganization, and that's what we're seeing now. And uh, hopefully those talented people now hitting the open market find better fits where they can work on future amazing products that do deliver value for people.
0: Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes where you will find a link where you can subscribe directly to Acton Unwind, or you can just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. And again, if you have questions or comments for the show, please email them to us at unwind at actin.org. That's unwind at acton.org. If we read your question or comment on the show, you'll get a complimentary book from the Acton Catalog. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan for the Acton Institute. I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.